0: The following podcast is brought to you by fantasy-animation.org. Each week we feature a blog post discussing some aspect of the relationship between fantasy cinema and the medium of animation. These can take the form of uh, event reviews, film reviews, book reviews, editorials or sequence analysis where you take one or two minutes of your favourite film or TV show and analyse the relationship between fantasy cinema and animation um, as displayed within your chosen extract. If you'd like to join in on the blog post, please get in contact at fantasy-animation.org. For now, enjoy the show. Morning in Paris, the city awakes to the bells of law. Hello listeners and welcome back to the Fantasy Animation Podcast for another week. I'm Alex Sargent. And I'm still Chris Holiday, And we are currently... Uh, sitting here in my uh, well my new house yes I've just moved a few days ago we thought why not why not relocate the podcast to a place full of boxes absolutely we're taking the podcast on tour so um, if the acoustic level sound a little bit different or you hear a passing train or a car well that's London living for you absolutely um and we are here to discuss uh, Disney's 1996 animated feature the hunchback of Notre Dame or as I remember because um, it got mocked uh, in front of me as a small child I believe that it was was pronounced Notre Dame, which... uh is fine if it's an American university but as a cathedral not great pronunciation skills Mr Trailer Man.
1: Well on the topic of pronunciation I'm very much looking forward to you navigating some of the character (laughs) names particularly as just before we started you said that there was a chance you might call a character by a totally different name so for those listeners who've been following the podcast ever since the Ghibli Ghibli fiasco this is another installment of fantasy animation but it's also another installment of can Alex say character names correctly? And the answer is no. Um, It's not so much pronunciation this time as memory
0: um i'm really bad with character names in general um and some of these will will well luckily there's a wikipedia page just in my left eye uh, today so i think i'm gonna do a stellar job uh chris yes we decided we should do another disney we've done quite a few contemporary disneys and we did snow white right back in the day um we were bashing ideas about and you said it's got to be hunchback
1: of notre dame uh why so Well, so this is, is, and and I'm at pains to to sort of say that this film is really important within animation history because it is and it isn't in lots of ways. For me personally, it's, I guess, one of uh, a series of films in the 90s that was very formative for me. And actually, it was a film that came out when I was about 10, 11 years old. But it was also one of the first films that I ended up writing about when i started this kind of scholarly pursuit into animation so it's actually a film that i wrote about for my ma dissertation many moons ago Um, and so actually as we as we record this podcast with the sound of passing trains and the uh, (laughs) ambience of london around us uh, i have my old ma um, chapter that i wrote on the film in front of me because and kind of going back through it, it was reminding, reminding me of how wonderful the film is. And I do think it is really wonderful. And it, it sort of did well, middle to well at the box office, but critically less so. And hopefully we'll get into a little bit about where it stands within contemporary Disney. Obviously, we've done Snow White, we've done Moana. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a film that is, yeah, 20 years before Moana. But I think it's absolutely fabulous and and. Yeah, I, I think it's a great one to talk about. I think it's a great one to to put some pressure, perhaps, on the Disney formula, which I know you have a, a kind of love hate relationship with, um, and also the issue of periodization. Like, it works really nicely. Disney animation is often carved up into discrete sections, and this film, I think, operates on a knife edge between potentially two periods within Disney's recent history. Um, so that's that's what I have to say about the film. Yeah. Fantasy, Victor Hugo, talk Sh- to me.
0: Sure. Well I actually I, I'm very happy for this podcast to be, um, to quote a wise philosopher, very much your baby because I, I actually think um, a lot of a lot of what you're saying struck me whilst watching it. This isn't a film I've seen many times but when I have seen it, uh, both as a child and more recently, um, I've always been struck by how different it is from a lot of Disney movies and yet how good it is at being different. Um, so, I, so there's lots to say there. I, I guess from my, my, you know, my job here as a fantasy scholar, um, I'm thinking of it as an adaptation of Victor Hugo's novel um, and I'm thinking about it in terms of the 19th century grotesque. Um, so this is a very different sort of stable of fantastic writing. Epitomised by novelists like Hugo or someone like Charles Dickens, um, back in London again, um, which is sort of a very interesting subgenre of what we might call fantastic literature, but it's sort of a a, a subgenre that asks us to question why we might give it that label, because um, at least... uh, The source novel um, isn't necessarily fantastic, although seems to live in a world beyond our own. It's a world full of grotesque characters, in quotation marks, um, extremes of personality, a physiognomic sort of outlook on life, and lots of sort of demons both literally and metaphorically around the narrative but one that doesn't necessarily overtly trip into the realm of the fantastic although of course this film does on numerous occasions usually when it's at its most disney quote-unquote so you know when the when the gargoyles turn up and start talking it almost feels more cozy than when uh we get um shots of sort of urban poverty um and and things like that and actually i guess i guess what i'm interested in would be how that Victor Hugo source novel and the complexity of that which is a very strange novel in itself anyway um, is still there in this disney packaged animated feature.
1: Well let's begin with the with the source material because uh, and the, and because the source material itself is 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 i guess point 1. point 1 on the how does this film do disney slightly differently how does it graft its formula if such a thing exists how does it graft it onto um, a kind of gothic novel like Victor Hugo's Hunchback of Notre Dame. And so turning the novel into an animated musical at the time, given that Disney had had a rather successful run of Broadway-style musicals, this film is 1996, so it's a couple of years after The Lion King um, and then another year further on from stuff like a lantern, and so this is a this is an interesting movie because it's one of the first times that Disney is being outwardly provocative I think in one of its animated adaptations of course it's animated classic literature or adapted classic literature before we only have to think of Alice in Wonderland, Jungle Book, whatever it might be but this film I think particularly given the adult nature of Hugo's original source material and the themes that are still present within the Disney film whether it's kind of um, Catholic guilt, damnation, hypersexuality in the form of Esmeralda which we'll um, talk a little bit about voiced by Demi Moore in the film. Obviously Disney has this great tradition of adapting fairy tales and that's sort of tried and tried and tested but to tell a story about a deformed bell ringer called Quasimodo is is one of those things where i i think it probably put audiences off but then at the same time a lot of the the stuff that was coming out at the time 95 96 was well disney can't make dumbo forever it can't make these films forever and this is pushing the, the disney identity in, in a different direction and actually i think that's one of the, the the best features of the film is that it's um i mean the setting is beautiful the uh, replication representation of uh, paris both through, above, across, within the streets of Paris, I think is fantastic, but it is a different mode of storytelling. And actually, I think this movie sets in motion the next five years of what Disney would go on to do, i.e. take that Disney formula and attach it to Hercules, attach it to Mulan, attach it to um, Tarzan. And so there's some interesting stuff I think we can probe a little bit.
0: So let's set the scene. Where are we in Disney history here, for those that perhaps aren't um, au fait with these sort of uh, peaks and troughs that we often talk about in academic discussions of Disney.
1: Yeah. So as I said before, Disney animation is often broken up into these kind of discrete periods, uh, and we've you know we've had conversations about about this about Disney's as you say peaks and troughs, but moments in its history where it's being quote unquote classic, where it's being derivative, where it's being uh, formulaic. Um, you get the kind of classic period. You typically get the middle period or the middle years, the post Walt Disney period, so 1966, 67 onwards. Disney's died; he's no longer steering the proverbial ship, as it were. Then you get a period of the uh, in the 70s and 80s, where, and I know that you've written about this and are interested in the Disney Dark Ages. And then we get a return to form with the Renaissance, 88, 89 onwards, to about. And now this is where the tricky kind of period begins or the periodization begins, because many scholars would say that the, the Disney renaissance begins in 88, 89, and continues for the next te- decade. And it culminates with Tarzan, 1999, and then from 2000 onwards, Disney are doing something quite different. And Chris Pallant has written about this as a neo-Disney phase, a, a phase that begins with Fantasia 2000, and then continues on in The Emperor's New Groove, terrific movie, uh, and Lilo and Stitch as well, where they're being a little bit more cartoonal, they're playing with their own identity, adopting a kind of um, Warner Brothers-style anarchy. I would argue that actually the Neo-Disney period begins slightly earlier, and it potentially begins 95, 96, because you have this cycle of three or four movies where Disney are departing from that Broadway style. You have Pocahontas, 95, Hunchback of Notre Dame, 96, Hercules, 97, and then Mulan, 98. And I think those four set the, set the scene, as it were, for the kind of Neo-Disney, anti-Disney, non-Disney, Um, identity that would come to fruition many scholars have said that come to fruition later in the in the decade and into the 2000s Um, so this is i think this film stands out for me because it is so well we can talk about this so different from the disney renaissance movies but also borrows from them so so we're
0: talking we're talking disney renaissance we're talking little mermaid beauty and the beast uh, aladdin lion king and, Pokemon, then suddenly, and, then, and then suddenly, uh, Pocahontas. That's Pocahontas, a strange one We can sort of, yeah, but those sort of—that's the corpus. Yes. And then we get these, this, which arguably all have some similar traits, although, as I say, um, I, I, I have slight issues with any attempt to sort of make this too rigid. But. Um, Arguably, have certain traits that we all might associate with classic or quintessential Disney, and then we get this thing, which has sort of partially got its foot in that camp, but yeah. also doing things. It's uh, got a
1: one bit foot in the Disney identity, Disney formula, and it's got another foot uh, in the camp I would label gothic, socio yeah. political melodrama. Yeah, um. I mean, uh, the
0: the the themes of this. I mean, usually the themes of most Disney movies are family the importance of family or the importance of individuality and in being yourself yes um and even something like uh, moana which you listeners will have heard me uh you know um ramble on yeah, wonderfully compa- compose an epithet to uh in earlier podcasts it, that it's similar traits and i think that does it very well but similar traits this is a movie about uh yeah catholic sin uh the the, the sort of um the banality of evil uh Beauty as a concept, salvation as a concept, um, all ripped straight from the pages of, of Hugo and, and dealt with in that similarly strange way as Hugo in that uh, we talk about the the, the, the sort of the, the literature of the gothic or the grotesque. Yeah. Are, is one supposed to revile or is one supposed to uh, celebrate? Quasimodo. Obviously, the narrative wants you to celebrate him, and he's the sort of classic angel in a devil's body, but this very notion of the devil's body sort of plays into quite traditional body politics. There's a weird sort of mixing and merging going on there that the film sort of presents rather than tries to um, solve for the audience, and that kind of complexity... I wrote down this is a film with lots of depth, and I mean that both thematically and visually. The film is thematically deep, There's lots of things to get your teeth into, and visually it is deep. There's just so much, um, so many scenes with characters in a sort of immersed setting, whether it's Quasimodo coming down the bell tower or going through the streets of Paris. Um, I I don't know how the technology is realised there, but this is a movie that definitely feels like a living, breathing, atmospheric city, which the narrative just... Sort of nimbly skips over, almost like the tracking shot at the beginning of the movie, um, where we sort of go down into the rooftops of Paris um, before sort of coming back out the other side and leaving you to contemplate on your sins as to what you've seen. Um, but it's great, it's great to watch, really visually a visual feast, I'd say.
1: It's uh, well, exactly. Um, I think you're you're right. the, the depth of the film extends both to the way it looks and, and, and so kind of stylistically, formally, but, but equally thematically. And, and I wonder whether part of the, the problem of the film, or it was a sort of victim of its own um, audacity, in the sense of a lot of the reviews coming out at the time were, well, this, is, this is a strange thing for Disney to do. They've had this really successful cycle of movies that obviously we look back now that have been adapted for kind of big Broadway musicals and stuff like this, uh, Aladdin, Lion King, so forth. It's a strange thing for them to do. Pocahontas, you get Pocahontas where the, the animals don't talk. Okay, that's weird because Disney's in the business of the talking animals. Um, and then you get a film like this where uh, if you if you itemise the things that the film is about, you get allusions to adult lust and theology, mm-hmm. obviously. Explicit references to physical deformity, persecution, public execution. Throwing in a bit of public execution. Darkness, obviously. religious Religious symbolism. And then at the same time, it's entertainment for young children because it's a Disney movie. Sure. And so I wonder whether the film suffered from its own uh, kind of provocative attempt to do something slightly different. And and ultimately, the film gets, or certainly at the time, got subsumed by the. Well, this is this doesn't quite gel. And ultimately, it's not that it's a forgotten Disney movie because I've I've remembered it. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an interesting one. I think to think about how Disney outwardly presents itself. Um, how it markets its formula and, and what, what what continuities this film, as you say, might have with the Renaissance period, but also how it might look forward to the kinds of stylist experimentation that certainly within academia has been attributed to later Disney movies. So it's an interesting one because it sits on the cusp of potentially two eras and might help us, if we look at it in detail, rethink the tra- trajectory of... Disney animation, what it, what it did in the 90s.
0: Well, shall we uh, plough through it then? and us Let's, plow uh, let's see what we get. So, I guess to set up the plot, uh, we get a sort of classic prologue-esque moment where, interesting, we get sort of um, a gypsy, entertainer, uh, yep. fool in the sort of classic Shakespearean sense of the word where the fool is somehow both more powerful and wiser than all the other stable characters telling the story of Quasimodo to me it almost had um, a sort of uh, a note of Aladdin about it where you've got the sort of the genie as the market uh, seller at the beginning who tells the tale Um, it even set in a market right yeah so uh, it recalled that for me and he tells the story of of the origin story of, of Quasimodo I suspect we'll get at some point when we've really run out of ideas hunchback colon, you know, the, the beginning and we'll... Uh...
1: There are rumours as we sit, as you sit in your brand new digs, there are rumours, <laughs> one well there is a sequel to the film, a straight to Disney have a an interesting kind of sub uh, corpus of movies the straight to straight to video yeah. or the straight well, to We'll TV be sequels. doing that when we
0: get to episode a thousand yes, of, of this podcast. Yeah. Um, Hunchback 2
1: <laughs> um, Notre Dame and then the there's also uh, uh, rumours of a, a live action adaptation and by live action adaptation I mean heavily CG'd adaptation yeah, of the film. So we might not be far off from a, from a, a return to, and hopefully a reclaiming of a, of a film. But yes, so you said it begins with this kind of prologue. We've talked previously about uh, fa- kind of fairy book, fairy tale book openings. Um, this does the job through this uh, figure of Clopin, who's this sort of strange um, gypsy figure who exists on the streets of, uh, of Paris and introduces through a puppet show that he's he's telling some local children about. He tells, the, as you say, the origin story of Quasimodo, and then we get a, a sort of flashback. We get uh, a scene that shows where Quasimodo came from, the, yeah. his relationship with Frollo. So Claude Frollo is the Frollo.
0: Yes, I'm not going to call him Frodo, because I haven't seen The Lord of the Rings too many times. Yeah, Frollo um, yeah.
1: lives. <laughs> so Frollo, Claude Frollo is uh, a sort of religious figure who... It, we we first introduce through his um, infanticide where he's about to kill the baby Quasi. Uh, and I guess we also
0: get um, the relationship between Quasimodo and the gypsy community yes. set up there. Quasimodo's um, uh, mother, who sort of does the self sacrificing act at the beginning, Moses like act of saving the child at the expense of the mother um, Frollo is Frollo I did it wrong. Frollo, right? frollo, right. frollo is um, about to kill Quasimodo he sees it as an abom- abomination sort of against God's plan um, and then is sort of uh, guilted I guess into uh, raising the child um, by the by the priest of Notre Dame and and he does decide to spare his life but he, but on the proviso that the priest keeps him in the bell tower and um raises him in secret and he sort of provides the finances for him to do that and occasionally goes to visit him and that's sort of what's set up um as so, we, yes, as we so, start
1: the narrative so keep him in the bell tower he does and and mm. it's funny that you mentioned aladdin earlier because the, his relationship so quasimodo sort of grows up um and there's a really stirring opening uh, musical number the bells of notre mm. dame yeah. and then he's introduced in a wonderful way kind of jumping onto the the decking inside the the bell tower by his feet. And then there's a a reveal as he looks out over the the streets of Paris. And his primary companions he's kept kind of locked up uh, are these three gargoyles. Now, his relationship to these gargoyles, who are named Victor, Hugo and Laverne, um, reminds me, or certainly he's... What's the word? Uh, He's... imprisonment at the, in the bell tower reminds me of kind of a jasmine-esque he like princess jasmine and aladdin wants to experience the world outside the world beyond the or, castle walls i guess
0: or ariel in the little mermaid yep. i want to be where the people are exactly um,
1: he does he wants to be where the people are uh,
0: bell um this must be more than this provincial life
1: right so he is so are we saying and um, by we i mean you mm-hmm. quasimodo is is disney princess I'm he, so, he adopts so, the the codes and conventions of the Disney princess? You heard it here first, I it?
0: guess so, yes. I guess, you know, yeah. Right back to Snow White, I am wishing. Um, he's the one longing to sort of be. I don't know what that means in terms of the politics of this, in that it, it reclaims it, I guess, gendered wise, it is arguably uh, problematic. I don't know. It, it sort of reclaims it from male. But then we've got this sort of figure. We've got the figure of the grotesque looking down on humanity. And that's ultimately what um, the grotesque fiction and gothic fiction is argued to do. It turns. It turns uh, it introduces these sort of melodramatic, stylistic, um, physiognomic elements to try and sort of comment on those who do not possess this thing. So we get li- a literal act of a of a so-called freak looking down on the on the rooftops of Paris during the Day of Fools and longing to be down there
1: amongst the people. So this is where I think the first you, you get an insight into Quasimodo's sort of. Um, desires he wants to as you say experience the world down below he's he's up he's up top and he wants to experience the world down below he wants to take part in this feast of fools uh, egged on by the three gargoyles
0: yes and i must say i do like this movie quite a lot
1: i don't need the three gargoyles to be in it uh, so i wonder whether the gargoyles are an attempt to you know they are the comic relief and they are there to lighten the mood and they are trying to remind you that this is sort of light and, and airy and fun. And, and,
0: and it's one of the few overtly fantastical features of the movie. Right? It's in a strange the, in one. In that we're dealing with grotesques and shadows and strangeness. But but, but there we get actual gargoyles coming to life. Um, so that there are the moments where this film tries to sort of cling on to the Disney Features that we might associate with this period are the least successful to me. So I don't need three wisecracking um, gargoyle sidekicks voiced by Jason Alexander. I'm assuming Seinfeld was big at the time. <laughs> um, who else is it? Uh, Jason Alexander... Um, Mary to, Wicks, two academics look things up on Wikipedia yeah, and pretend um, that we just know them off the top of Mary our head Mary Wicks, um, uh, oh yes, yeah, so um, and they're all you know, yeah, called Victor Hugo. Ha ha ha. Um, so yeah, I don't need them. Um, so I okay, so let's.
1: What what doesn't quite gel for me with these gargles because these are the, the within the movie you get quite a brutal. This is a, what the the rules of the world are. It has a, it has its history, but it also has. Um, I don't know that. Religion and there's a certain about this is a film about fitting in. Okay.
0: Yes. This, this isn't a whimsical film.
1: Is no, it? and it's very very dark. And you yeah. get you get a pre credit sequence. It's not until Quasimodo appears that you get Hunchback and Notre Arm. Mm-hmm. Then this is this is an overt moment of fantasy because it's unexplained and but suddenly and 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 you're invited to read it as as and rightly so Quasimodo's um, engagement. He doesn't have anyone to engage with from the outside world. His only really engagement with human form is Frollo. Yeah. So what he does, he just he just kind of makes this world up. But it seems like that, even though the cargos at first I thought were a figment of his imagination, which I
0: thought was an interesting touch to sort of have this as as something that was supposedly subconscious. But I know what the butt is coming. But
1: they're not because yeah. they they hold a stake in the rules of the world. Yeah. So fast forward to the climax of the movie when they they are part of the um, resistance. Yeah. And so they are—they are having this. They are challenging. They are fighting. They are throwing things off of off of rooftops. Mm. So they—they they are quote unquote real yeah. people. And, and it's
0: totally really jarring to have this sort of final set piece. Uh, we jumped from the beginning to the end here, but exactly, fine. Yeah. This final set piece where uh, essentially Frollo is murdering uh, Esmeralda because he cannot face the fact that he, he his lust for her goes against his sort of pious Christian values or his sort of perverted version of Cro- of. Christian values, so must so must burn the devil, burn the she-wolf, and all of this really interesting stuff is going on. And then you've got wise cat-cracking Disney sidekicks like pretending to make machine-gun noises by firing stones out of their mouths and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um. You know, it's um. It's a very strange moment. I would compare them to Timon and Pumbaa. Yes. Except having not seen the Lion King for a very long time, my memory of the Timon and Pumbaa is they come in the narrative just when you need some light relief and that you've had the death of Mufasa you've yeah. had all this stuff and that's the moment the film lets you enjoy itself again lets Simba enjoy itself again here these 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 things up in the bell tower are about as obsolete as the bell tower itself sitting up in the corner like not necessary to the narrative but still there and annoying you well
1: I was going to say I think there's f- formally if we take the source material as something that potentially has had an effect on the Disney formula let's let's mm. paint with that broad brush as it were a lot of these sidekick characters, and, and Timon and Pembroke are an interesting one, because they're often observers, they are voyeurs, and they comment on the action. So whether it's kind of a wisecracking aside, or in the case of The Lion King, Can You Feel the Love Tonight, where to, uh, Simba and Nala are having this romantic moment, and the characters, Timon and Pembro, are watching on, and it's, and it's framed very much as they're observing and commenting. I can see what's happening, and they don't have a clue. This is, this is a version where the sidekicks are implicated in the drama and the, the kind of gothic tragedy of hey quasi what's going on out there a fight a flogging a festival you mean the feast of fools uh-huh all right all right pour the wine and
0: There's cut the cheese it is a treat to watch the colorful pageantry of the simple peasant folk boy nothing like balcony seats for watching the old fof yeah watch it. oh look a mime
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and that's what that's what i don't quite get that the, the film sets up the three gargles as entirely part of his trauma. Mm. Quasimodo's trauma. He has no family in true Disney sense, character sense. Disney characters don't have families or complete families. These are the three characters, his father, his mother, and then his brother. And yet they come to, and that's, that's what I don't quite, that's what doesn't quite gel for
0: me. Yeah, um, no, I agree. Um, So, Nevertheless, the Gargoyles convinced Quasimodo to go down into the the, the Festival of Fools, the yep. Feast of Fools, the Day of Fools, whatever you want to call it. The, the Podcast of Fools. I mean, I'm sure that it actually has a name in the narrative, but I've forgotten no, it. It's, so, it's, the so fe- it's the Festival of Fools. Festival are, of Fools. I got it wrong all three times. Yeah, um, yeah. The Festival of Fools. Um, Unless we edit
1: the podcast and you say it right all the way through. Yeah, I mean, that would be... Festival.
0: So the Festival of Fools. Um, <laughs> right, um, and uh, he joins the people, um, and there's a sort of moment where he is crowned the King of the Fools. And it's a, again a classic sort of Hugo esque moment, and on one level it gives, and on one level it takes. Um, carnivalesque is the word I will use here, referencing, of course, the very famous cultural theorist. Uh, Mikhail Bakhtin, who argues about the carnival-esque as a sort of precursor to fantasy storytelling, the carnival, um, a, medieval, a tradition of medieval culture whereby uh, the fool is crowned king for the day, but the purpose of carnival is to reinforce that the king is the king for the 364 days the rest of the year. When things are termed topsy-turvy, that reinforces that they should be the right way up. So there is there's an nice, interesting yeah. carnival-esque aesthetic going on. Well,
1: there's it. a nice analogy here to the, the topsy-turviness of the film and what it does to the Disney uh I, the disney stable the disney canon the film itself or certainly perhaps disney scholars don't quite know what to do with the film so they kind of lock it away uh, and so in many ways this podcast is the festival of fools because we are now <laughs> releasing the, i'm the, so glad you brought that nickname into the world yeah. um yeah so the the film i guess isn't, isn't reflexive in the way that we previously talked about reflexivity but there is a quite a, quite a nice analogy in terms of what we do with a film like Quasimodo, a film like Hunchback of Notre Dame, and ultimately what the characters themselves, the society of Paris in the 19th century, what we do with a figure like Quasimodo. So as you say, he goes down to the Festival of Fools, uh, and that's when actually he reignites his relationship with the gypsy community. Yeah. Um, and he does so through the character of Esmeralda so Esmeralda is an interesting one because she's not a princess, not that all Disney movies have to have a Disney princess, Disney might have told us that that's the case yeah. but Disney movies don't need to have princesses she's not a princess, she is uh, a gypsy performer uh, borderline pole dancer voiced by Demi Moore <laughs> um, she's animated in, in a different way, the use of light and shadow and kind of to, to accentuate the contours of her body I think are really interesting yeah. and that that moment where she's performing for the townsfolk and Frollo is sort of in in, enraptured by her performance Um, she then meets Quasimodo and she shows him sympathy but the kicker is she thinks that he's wearing a mask he's not wearing a mask but ultimately that that scene is really important because it establishes a series of relationships it establishes Quasimodo's relationship to Esmeralda and Esmeralda's sort of sympathy with him but it also establishes Frollo's lust for Esmeralda and then thirdly, I think it establishes the character of Phoebus. So Phoebus is a, a sort of captain, soldier-esque um, her- hero, voiced by Kevin Klein, who comes into the film and he is equally entranced by Esmeralda. Um, and so actually, there is a sort of strange love triangle, or well, love quadruped. Yes. Quadruped or square. Quadrilogy. Square. <laughs> yeah, that's a, a, a love square. Yeah. We uh, there is a love square in the film between Frollo. Esmeralda, Phoebus, and uh, Quasimodo himself. And the film is really about how those four characters move and interrelate with each other. And that's maybe the strength of the film. It keeps those four characters quite tight and then moves them around.
0: So here's the thing that I wanted to mention, actually, that I I know the film has been critiqued for, um, which is sort of this... So the the narrative needs to enforce this fact that Esmeralda um, is this sort of figure of lust, of attraction, of, of love... To all the male, uh, all her male suitors, yeah. All the characters fall in love with her, or at least their own definition of what that word means. Um, and she sort of needs to function as that in the narrative. And and visually, as you say, she's very stylised. She's sexualized very overtly. Um, we've got the sort of you know the 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 Hollywood starlet Demi Moore voicing her. And and there's an interesting sort of cultural um, issue going on there, where we've got a sort of white uh, Anglo-Saxon voicing. Um, this gypsy uh, woman. Um, And I guess I wonder, is the film guilty of doing through its design and its characterization, or at least its casting to the character of Esmeralda, what the men in the narrative consistently do to her, which is to sort of turn her into this object of, Yes. lustful fascination rather than this real, breathing human being.
1: Well, absolutely. And and, and,
0: actually, and I guess if it is guilty of that, is that okay or is that on purpose because that's the point she serves in the narrative?
1: Well, I think you're right that the casting of Demi Moore is an interesting one given her stardom within the 1990s and her relationship to a certain kind of film, perhaps. So mm. just before... She stars in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. She's in Decent Proposal, Disclosure. Uh, and then later on, around the same sort of time, in fact, the same year as Hunchback of Notre Dame, she stars in Striptease. Right. And so this is quite a provocative... And, and it, it certainly interested me, as I said, when I, when I was first writing about animation and thinking about the courtship narrative as part of the formula. She is introduced through, yes, her sympathy, but then her hypersexuality. And you get reaction shots of Frollo. And I think at one point Fever says, What a woman! Um, which is a nice sort of call back to you know we're only two years after the Lion King when Timon says Pumba not in front of the kids. Yeah, 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 it's the exact opposite of that that we have um, a kind of version of Disney womanhood that perhaps modifies the good good clean fun element of the Disney formula. Um, the Disney magic creates a quite a sexualized whether it's sexist but a sexualized conception of, of femininity uh, that I think makes the film perhaps quite an interesting case study um, because she is. I mean, yes, she connotes a sort of um, subject of the male gaze if we go down that route. But at the same time, what's interesting, I think, is her design, her exaggerated physicality. Um, I do wonder whether the film, yet therefore, adopts that that the viewpoint. It becomes Frollo in that we are we become entranced by her, but we begin to fetishize her, her lines and her curves and her shadows and her kind of voluptuous figure, which I think I think is is an interesting modification to. A, Jasmine, Ariel, the bookish Belle. This is a, perhaps what, in the first first instances, uh, a female character, a female Disney heroine, though she's not a princess, who is shapely and beautiful and and sexually attractive and made sex made sexually attractive in the world of the film itself, because we see her, and this prompts the musical number Hellfire, where <laughs> yeah. Frollo is. It can't believe you know, and he sings. His lyrics are things like "Protect me, Maria. Don't let the siren cast her spell." So she is within the world of the film, able to to kind of um, coerce masculinity or male figures.
0: I think that the Hellfire musical sequence wonderful. is really wonderful yeah. stuff. It's like the film at its absolute You said that when you we were watching it, and this
1: is wonderful.
0: Like, Which, you know, wonderful's an odd way to describe a, a sort of a song by a Disney villain about how much he um, lusts for the, the sort of heroine, but it's this really fascinatingly complex song where, where Frollo sings about sort of basically his lust for Esmeralda. He literally turns her into a painting on a wall, this sort of yes. uh, shadow painting um, and and turns her into a devil in the process, and basically sings how if if I can't have this woman, I must kill her, and if I must, and if I if she makes me feel this way, she must be evil. Um, and it sort of is the sort of you know I've never seen a more succinct articulation of misogyny uh, before. Certainly, the legacy of misogyny within Catholicism um, than this, and it's done in two minutes uh, with some songs dancing. So that's.
1: that's this fire in my skin, this burning desire, is turning me to
0: sin. It's not my fault.
1: I'm not to blame. It is the
0: Gypsy Girl, the witch who her. Sent...
1: Let's hold fire. For a little bit on our discussions. But it was so interesting It was. Uh, as a generic insert as this goes, that was an interesting conversation. I'd like to talk a bit about film reviews, um, and in particular, I'd like to talk to those people, those listeners who have been to see a recent film that you would consider to fall under the remit of fantasy and animation. We'd love to hear from you. We've published pieces on Captain Marvel, How to Train Your Dragon. We've also published pieces uh, on the most recent Mary Poppins film. So if you've seen, been to the cinema, you've seen anything on television, you've downloaded a movie... You're streamed a movie, we'd love to hear from you.
0: These can be great ways for you. Anyone who's a budding writer out there, anyone who wants to get into film journalism, film criticism, um, film academia. Um, these are a good way for you to try out some ideas, play with them and, and get some of these published now online for our readers um, who, who are avid readerships, so they'd be love, love to hear from you.
1: So go out, get your cinema ticket and get in touch.
0: Fantasy-animation.org.
1: I would say that we're. I suppose we're. uh, It's risky to sort of say that. Yes, well, Esmeralda is known for her kind of seductive manoeuvres around a soldier's spear as she performs as part of the Feast of Fools, Um, and you could argue that she is prostituting her most valuable commodity, which is her body, which is which is interesting as a kind of thing to think about. Yet, she's a really interesting character because later on in the film, when she has sort of intimate moments with Quasimodo, and there's a she likes. Or she likes him, but he loves her, sort of thing. Um, she talks about the idea of the, the image that maybe people have got the wrong idea about, but about me in the same way people have got the wrong idea about you. And so she is a really she is three dimensional in the way that she's drawn and, and voluptuous, but mm-hmm. she's a really three dimensional character. Um, and visually she's attractive, but I think there's something the way that she talks about. Um, the society that she's equal and outcast in the same way as as Quasimodo and stuff, and she's had to kind of live on the streets, and 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 so there's a lot going on, and she has that beauty one, again. One of your favourite numbers that we talked about the um, the musical number. Uh, uh, God help the out- God, outcasts. Yeah, that one mm. that I instantly forgot the name of. Yeah, God help yeah, yeah, yeah. the outsiders, which is uh, again an interesting. The film is that's quite a slow number within the first half an hour and suddenly we're, we're having a moment of contemplation and insight into a character that's got nothing to do with her uh, her aspirations personally but one that she's talking about outsiders in general so yeah i think she's
0: fabulous so this brings me to, so the the narrative goes forward he meets esmeralda he's crowned the king of the falls but he sort of is suddenly um vilified by the crowd when they realize he's not wearing a mask he, he runs is, he is he, is he, he runs back to the sanctuary of the, the cathedral and esmeralda encounters frollo she yes. rebels against him overtly in public so she must seek sanctuary in the cathedral as well um so they both seek sanctuary so there's this parallel as you're saying between the Esmeralda and Cosimodo, they're both outcasts. Um, so here's here's both what I think is really interesting about the movie and perhaps the most problematic thing about the movie is, and I remember feeling this when I was watching it as a child, which is that obviously what you get is a very classic Disney couple here. You've got Esmeralda and Prince Charming, or uh, whatever his name is, the, the guard.
1: Captain Phoebus.
0: Designed very much in the Prince Charming haircut. Yes. Uh, for handsome... Uh, rakish, uh, very uh, witty, uh, everything you'd want in the sort of classic male heroine. Um, so you get that romance play out, but you get it played out from the p- perspective of Quasimodo, this yes. this uh, uglified, quote unquote, outsider, this figure of the grotesque, who is never really allowed permission into the, into the world on his own terms. He's sort of allowed to walk Hand in hand beside the couple by the end. Yes. So there's a really odd sort of thing going on here where you're sort of constantly positioned outside the narrative almost. You're 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 you're, 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 you're Quasimodo yeah. looking down on the action throughout the whole thing. Um, and I'm not sure the film makes enough of the alienation and ostracization of Quasimodo. We hear them talk about it a lot. Yeah. But actually, the structure of the movie, perhaps in the simplification of the plot, you actually get Quasimodo pretty much being accepted by society within about. 10 minutes of the movie yes um, and there's not much evidence of that changing esmeralda pretty much instantly gets on board the guard instantly gets on board the gargoyles love him where, where are the scenes of of the actual physical pain of being demonized for your physicality that that are so key to understanding this figure as a as a sort of mournful representation of the
1: grotesque there's a there's one moment so when he first goes down into the to the festival of fools yeah Feast of Fools, Day of Fools, whatever we're calling it, Um, there is the moment when he's revealed and he's tied down like an animal and uh, some of the audience are watching the baying crowds throw vegetables and and rotten fruit and all this sort of thing at him. Uh, And actually Phoebus turns to Frollo and says, permission to to stop this effectively act of uh, kind of barbarism. But it doesn't happen and, and that sequence is actually, I think you're right, that sequence is less there to... Construct Quasimodo as somebody who is being vilified, and actually, what it's there to do that sequence is to one emphasize Captain Phoebus is he's a good man, yeah, um, and therefore a suitable person to kind of pair off with Esmeralda with later down the line, but it's also there to go, Isn't Frollo? A bit annoying and a bit of a villain. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. There isn't enough there.
0: I feel, I feel like the character of the complexity of the character of Cosimodo is sacrificed to help all the other characters, which is what he does in the. Yeah. narrative. <laughs> this is what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's
1: some interesting stuff where the film does lapse into a sort of visual um, re-representation of, uh, or certainly there are some uh, allusions to a, a film like Aladdin. So there are lots of sequences that that place. Uh, and I'm thinking here of Jasmine and Aladdin's moment at the top, looking out across Agrabah. Uh, you have a, a line where Jasmine or Aladdin says to Jasmine, it's not much, but it's got a great view. Uh, equally, there's a similar moment between Esmeralda and, and Quasimodo where they Quasimodo takes her to his bell tower and they, and they look out and Esmeralda says, I bet the king himself doesn't have a view like this. And so visually it, it constructs their, their courtship narrative. But as you say, that falls away and he ends up being a character who is there to facilitate phoebus and esmeralda's relationship to the point where at the end of the movie he takes their hands and joins them together he is he will always be an outsider to Mm. to the the people but also to the romantic narrative that we think Mm. he's going to be a part of
0: and i don't necessarily mind that in terms of basic narrative beats because i think it would be a ridiculous ending or certainly a false ending if um he gets everything he wants like i think this has to acknowledge the underlying um structures of the society it's trying to Represent here as that Hugo's novel originally does, and this isn't an, this isn't a, a wishful fantasy of a hunchback managing to integrate itself into fifteenth-century Paris. This is a, you know acknowledging truths for what they are. I guess what I would like is these figures of the grotesque in Hugo are very interesting because they there are many ways sort of representations of our capacity for good and our capacity for brutishness. And um, in the novels, uh, in the novel I should say, um, but in Hugo's novels more broadly, these figures are brutish and they are beautiful and they're allowed to be both um and in this he's pretty much just a saint you know he's a holy he's a holy sufferer um dressed in a mm. dressed in a, in a hunchback outfit but he's never you know i think there's one scene where he chases the guard away uh the captain away with a torch and he, he gets a little bit aggressive but not really you know compare this to something like say phantom of the opera which is sort of you know even in the sort of You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical version of it. Yeah, that is a figure of of evil and of beauty at the same time. Yes, Um, and that's what um, Cosimo is in the novel, but he's not really that here. He's a sacrificial lamb who we're supposed to pity. Yeah, but but pity is can itself be quite um, can reinforce quite dominant power structures here. Maybe I'm asking a little bit too much of the movie here, because I think the film is very complex and is very interesting. But I think by taking this mammoth novel, but is full of all these ideas, and trying to keep some of those ideas whilst truncating it into a ninety-one minute Disney feature with songs, some of that complexity is lost, and lots of the complexity is lost around its central character, which is interesting, seeing as the film's the, called the Hunchback of Notre Dame.
1: Well, I mean, it leads me to believe to to think about the question of fantasy then, because there is. There is a uh, a Disney fantasy or there's a kind of typical Disney film going on here, but it exists entirely in Quasimodo's mind. So or, a...
0: or or it exists when Quasimodo isn't in the room. Yes. Boy like, meets girl, girl, boy gets girl, boy saves the day. You know, if you yeah. if you remove if you remove Quasimodo from the narrative, it's perfectly yeah. sensible. And a... yet
1: there are moments in the film, so there's a musical number A Guy Like You where the the gargoyles are trying to convince, and that's really their role to kind of cajole and jostle uh, Quasimodo. But in, I'm, I'm tempted to call him Hunchback, like <laughs> Hunchback, the Hunchback. But Quasimodo, mm. following uh, a guy like you, this kind of musical number where you have the gargoyles that are trying to convince him that actually Esmeralda is into him, and that, that there might be a possibility for their um, relationship. They say thing They call him Loverboy, um, and she and and she's him obviously suggestive towards him, and, and he responds in a way that thinks. That she might be into him, and I. She says, "He says, I dare to dream that she might even care for me." But then he then is removed. The film removes him from that courtship narrative, and then he just becomes this observer. Um, Then a guy, but the the musical number, a guy like you, is is this big musical number that is about love and romance, and he's dreaming of being part of this this um, union with Esmeralda. She then enters, and the scene cuts from red love hearts and to just a stark the top of a bell tower and it's really the film really brings him back down back down to earth and there's a really visually i think it aligns us with his sort of um desperation that he's actually never going to be part of this this courtship and and she then was there to bring in captain phoebus because he's been shot by an arrow um and so quasimodo assumes the role of outside, nurse outsider
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so the narrative sort of ticks along. Um, Esmeralda holds up in in the in the in the Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, eventually escapes and sort of out the back door. Returns to the gypsy community. Yep. Uh, we, were, we were commenting wily as we were watching it. She gives him this token. And I can't remember exactly what she says, but something like keep this safe by you for it will point you towards yeah, if your... You have, if you have yeah. this in your
1: hand, the city will be in your hand. Yeah, something.
0: yeah, yeah. it's one of those classic movie things that people say very cryptically when it would have been easy just to say, by the way, this necklace is a map of the city and yeah. I'm there. Um, Take this plot point and... <laughs> and, and use it well yes. for it might carry favour yeah. and good luck. What do you mean um, by that? It's a map of the city. Yeah. Um, so, so he follows this to... Uh, well, he, he learns of Frollo's um, sort of plan to destroy the Gypsy community. He's fi- found has found out where it is. It's this hidden sort of underground city, um, and and so both Phoebus and um, Quasimodo sort of journey to the city to to warn them basically that this um, act of genocide, I guess, is about to happen.
1: Yes. Yeah, so what happens is Phoebus and Esmeralda are kind of set up as this romantic, although um, they've certainly fallen in love, uh, and then Quasimodo is yeah kind of this outsider but has a stake in the narrative because as you say. Quasi and, and, and Phoebus go to the um, Court of Miracles to try and prevent Frollo from, as you say, killing <laughs> killing the gypsy or extinguishing the gypsy community um, in a way that he has been set up to, to be this kind of character previously. So anyway, so Frollo then appears and he's followed them uh, and that's really the last 20, 25 minutes mm-hmm. of the movie then becomes uh, a fight out between these characters. Frollo wants to extinguish the gypsy community, and also Cosimo,do and also uh, Phoebus, who has been um, what's the word? I literally can't think of the word. Insubordinate. He's been who wants to kill Phoebus because he's been insubordinate. Um, Phoebus and Esmeralda want to kind of get together. Quasimodo's is kind of caught in the middle of all yeah. these relationships, um, and so it's a really I think a really interesting ending because you don't really know I don't think you know really know what's going to going to happen it gets quite violent because Esmeralda is, is captured and, yep. and is going to be burnt at the stake mm-hmm. and ultimately Phoebus doesn't become the hero because Phoebus is incapacitated it's Quasimodo that becomes the hero um, and suddenly breaks free from the confines of the uh, tower clock yeah. tower
0: and shackles literally and you know, yep. Con- um,
1: crucially I think confronts Frollo this is the mm-hmm. first time because one of the things that the film does with its character design is set up Quasimodo as really physically strong um and it's just as sort of an emotional um what's the word emotional lethargy or emotional shackles as much as physical ones and it's it's a moment at the end where he suddenly takes the knife or takes the sword from Frollo and confronts him that Frollo looks genuinely scared Quasimodo is a really interesting character design but he's really really strong and he he then grabs Esmeralda uh, and they escape back up to the bell tower. And then the whole denouement of the film takes place on the kind of uh, parapets of these these um, towers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we get this sort of final fiery play out where he tries to burn her, he doesn't succeed. And Cosimo saves the day, and we get this shot at the end of sort of the three of them standing there, as we alluded to earlier, that, but Cosimo being sort of welcome onto the stage here. Um, so that's the plot. I guess there's a few kind of tidy up things I just would like yeah, to yeah. mention. Uh, I wonder about the role of digital and all this. We talked about this depth Yes. Of vision, in all this, and one of the most remarkable things I think visually about the movie is the way it evokes the space of Paris. Like you really feel like the various buildings as as the characters sort of moving and out them. And you feel the various struts and um, uh, yeah. the, the, the 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 architecture of Notre Dame is sort of there on screen. And and I know a little bit about this period, and that I know this is when disney um starting to move towards digital technology they're yes. starting to incorporate it into cell animation i can remember in a lad in this very vivid sequence of, with the magic carpet that involves computer animation and the cave of wonders um is this am i right to think this is this is computer animation being brought into the live action uh, into the uh, cell animation or have i got that wrong no, no, that it's just so yeah as you say it's like the a 90- digital multi-plane camera almost yes,
1: so within the 1990s um disney are progressively integrating as you say their digital technology Aladdin: The Cave of Wonders, uh, Lion King: The Wildebeest wildebeest Stampede, um, and there are certainly moments in Mulan where there are kind of uh, charges of armies that are done digitally. Hercules, you have the big kind of snake figure that is digital as well. So digital occupies moments of visual effects, in the same way that. a live-action film with digital effects has special effects. I think animated films can have special effects. And in the case of Disney in the 1990s, their cell-animated films include moments of digital effects. That's very interesting. I like the
0: idea of animation having special effects within it.
1: Um, it, And and it raises bigger questions about, you know, if if a film is entirely animated, can and where does it have its effects? Where do we attribute... Um, and and, and for, quite
0: often there are moments of, of fantasy. Yeah, right? think, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I
1: think that's absolutely right. And, and so in the case of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, it reminded me a lot of the use of digital technology from Basil the Great Mouse Detective, which culminates a sequence within the the cogs and the, the mechanics of Big Ben. And that was done digitally using the CAPS process, um, which is an acronym relating to a series of words that I can't remember. But it's <laughs> C-A-P-S, the CAPS technology. Sure. Um, but the way in which the camera moves through the hunchback of Notre Dame's setting, but also creates a sense of depth between streets, between rows of houses, but also the the kind of joists of the bell tower, mm. I think is really effective and gives a sense visually or stylistically of, of Quasimodo's isolation because, and it does it, yeah. it does it,
0: better than say the characterisation the narrative does I would argue and that's interesting special effect the other special effects you you listed so um, succinctly and and greatly there were all fabulous monsters and set pieces but here it's it's the space of Paris Paris is the special effect I think so yeah so that's really interesting um, in terms of what I was saying right at that thing in a podcast about this the, the, the subgenre of the grotesque very often being about cities and social realist issues within the city. So that's really um, uh, I mean, this film a nice parallel.
1: Yeah, and this film comes just before, or oh, it seems visually to be a precursor to later shifts in Disney technology. So the use of deep canvas um, effect, which, which more acutely combines digital software, computer software, with um, uh, 2D effects. So it, it allows animators to model three-dimensional space, Um, And and obviously is exploited quite nicely, or beautifully, quite nicely, beautifully in Tarzan as he swings through the jungle and the forest space. And so this is interesting. Um, But this film does it through, I think, the organisation of Paris, and I would say also the crowds as well. There's some wonderful at the end of the film where Quasimodo swings in to capture Esmeralda or to save her from her um, uh, kind of public humiliation, being burned at the stake. The camera rotates all around the space and then follows him up, and he stands atop his clock tower that's now no longer a prison but it's a, a, a podium and he holds her up and he announces that he has kind of saved her. Yeah. Um, and so yeah I think that the Disney in the 1990s is trying to figure out ways and places where it can integrate digital technology uh, and as you say we've had fantasy monsters, we've had wildebeest stampedes, magic carpets, cave of wonders and here we get a, a beautiful three-dimensional realisation of like Paris. I have okay. one more note um,
0: yes. which is uh, No impossible is, question this week No impossible question but an obligatory Wizard of Oz reference okay. which is my final note which is uh, during the sequence where the gargoyles um, make jokes during the hellfire and the and the brimstone uh, one of them uh, makes a reference to flying monkeys and fly my pretty so uh, Wizard of Oz here again
1: This podcast writes itself doesn't this
0: podcast it brought to you by the Wizard of Oz yeah, um, exactly. um, I
1: wonder what that I mean we might end up theorising this. you know. I wonder mm. why The Wizard of Oz... Is it just because it's a canonical work well, of fantasy, well, yeah, fantasy literature? I guess
0: or? so, and, and particularly US literature and US cinema. Yeah. You know, um, We probably can't do an episode on The Wizard of Oz because as far as I can remember, there's absolutely no animation in it. But in many ways, we always do an episode on The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, so, exactly. so we why, do it by proxy. Absolutely. Um, any other thoughts from you?
1: No, I mean, I have... I think <sighs> the idea of, of the film's position on the cusp of, of phases of Disney is an interesting one and, and, and hopefully thinking about its its characterization, its design its subject matter, its depth of all of those things uh, allows us to potentially blur some distinctions between, or at least suggest that there are overlaps between periods of Disney that perhaps Disney scholars um, are quick to mark out and, and really useful they are too, mm. but at the same time, certain vision and thematic elements of the film, it's it's love-hate relationship with the Disney formula more broadly allows us to perhaps mobilize the film in a different way and think about what effect that has on how we talk about Disney animation generally.
0: Yeah, great. Well, I I enjoyed watching it and um, I encourage listeners to check it out if they haven't watched it for a while. Um, Well, thanks very much for listening for another week. Uh, As always, you can find us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. Research. You can find us on Facebook, uh, search Fantasy Animation in the search bar. Uh, You can come and see what's happening on our blog posts at fantasy-animation.org and take part in the
1: conversations. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Bye. God help the outcasts Hungry from birth, show them the mercy they don't
0: find on earth. God help my people, we look to you still. God help the outcasts, or no.